Does your vision for business match what you see happening on a daily basis? Welcome to Jim White's Circle of Success, where Jim White brings it all together. For over 30 years, Jim White has worked with organizations and individuals worldwide to help develop and implement excellence. You'll get the inside story on how to create innovative leaders from one corner of your company to the other. Get everyone on your team contributing to the bottom line. Keep building revenue even when the economy and your customers have flatlined. And more. Jim White's Circle of Success Radio covers it all, from communication to contract negotiation, from personal fulfillment to revving up cash flow. It's not about theories. It's about showing you what works and how to make it work for you. And now, here's your host, Jim White. Welcome to the show, everyone. I am Jim White, and we're coming to you live, as we do every Saturday, from Carmel, California, on September the 10th, 2011. We've got a fantastic show for you today, ladies and gentlemen. And I want to start off the show by just framing these questions. Did the terrorist attack on the United States in 2001... The massive power blackouts of 2003, Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and the Gulf oil spill of 2010 just happened? Or were these shattering events foreseeable? Do such calamities, in fact, follow a predictable pattern? Can we plan for the unforeseen by thinking about the unthinkable. My guest today, Dr. Ted Lewis, is here to discuss these and many other uh, items associated with uh, his uh, newest book, uh, Box Sandpile. Ted is Professor of Computer Science and Executive Director of the Center for Homeland Defense and Security uh, Naval Postgraduate School here in on the Monterey Peninsula, California. Now, Ted has a very interesting background. Not only does he have uh, tremendous public and higher education, but he has private sector experience as well, which in my mind makes him very, very unique individual and more than qualified to discuss these subjects. Now, Ted was vice president from the uh, private sector with Eastman Kodak. He was the director of their digital business development and the senior VP of Eastman Kodak's uh, digital strategy formation. And he managed over $100 million a year in strategic investment funds and created spin-out. So this gives you a flavor. In addition, he was president and CEO of Daimler Chrysler Research and Technology of North America. Uh, where he was financially responsible for the subsidiary, uh, the director of the R&D labs located in Portland, Oregon, and Palo Alto, California, and also responsible for over 50 researchers. Again, he created a $100 million investment fund as an adjunct to the business development group located in uh, Stuttgart, Germany. And Ted has a Ph.D. in computer science, MS in computer science, and the BS in mathematics. Ted has countless, countless publications, uh, articles referred and unreferred, uh, just countless books, uh, The Friction, The Free Economy, Introduction to, uh, to Parallel and Distributed Computing, and like I said, his latest book, Box Sandpile, which we're going to be discussing today. It is very fitting uh, that we would have Ted on the show today where we're on the eve of the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And you can uh, talk to Ted, call in, ask any questions uh, if you uh, choose to do so at 619-768-7298. And it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Lewis to the program. Good morning, Ted. How are you doing? Good morning, Jim. Thank you very much for inviting me. 
My pleasure. I, I tell you what, uh, we had some time to, to share a, a few days ago, and I could have been there still to the day talking to you. Such a such a wonderful background, and as I was sharing in my introduction, it's very unique to find an individual that has this combination of public-private, uh, higher education, government, uh, just a very unique uh, blend. Uh, if, think, if it's okay with you, Ted, I'd, I'd like to start off with uh let's talk about the center what i uh, referred to as a center uh how what it is how it came about and it's one of the in my opinion one of the best kept secrets in the united states uh that's the way i view it from a private sector side what is the center how did it get started what it's all about okay there's center for homeland defense and security at the uh naval postgraduate school was formed in uh 2002 right on the hills of 911 and our tagline is, we're the nation's homeland security educator. And we have a pretty vigorous website at www.chds.us. Notice the .us. It's not a .com and it's not a .edu. Mm-hmm. And um, we do four or five things. Uh, we um, edu- do graduate-level education to the governors and their staff uh, in one-day seminars. And that's been pitched to all the governors in the 50 states. Um, We have a master's degree program that has now graduated over 400 uh, master's students from uh, homeland security disciplines like New York Fire Department, uh, police departments, the public health sector, um, public administrators that have to do with uh, emergency response. And that's an 18-month program. It's a very innovative program that you don't have to quit your job to attend. You spend two weeks every quarter in Monterey and in session, and then the rest is online. Mm-hmm. We have uh, an executive leaders program, which is the top leaders in the country and thought leaders and uh, executors of programs for homeland security, both in the private and public sector, and now involves uh, some people, our friends from Canada and other countries, and that's a one-week intensive deep dive four times over a nine-month period. So once again, you don't have to to give up too much of your schedule to participate. We have uh, a digital library, which is online at hsdl.org. We have a, a very vigorous university and agency partnership program that has over 200 universities and agencies throughout the United States that subscribe to our uh, what we call open source materials. So if you want to do a a course at a university on Homeland Security, you can go to our uh, website there, and and if you're a member, you can download all kinds of uh, very nicely done, high production value lessons on various topics in Homeland Security. And that's hmm. sort of the tip of the iceberg, but uh, that's a lot of stuff. It's a lot, lot of stuff. Uh, you said if you're a member, can the is the public invited to this, or is this uh, 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 just for the uh, when I say public, I should say the private sector, if you will. Uh, anybody yeah. walk alive can 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 they be involved in this as a member, or is that just for as public is concerned, the public sector it's fire most- responders? Yeah, it's mostly focused on universities and the public sector, but in a few instances we have um, private sector folks involved, like Walmart, for example, is involved in our program, and uh, Amtrak and so on. So we look at these uh, on an individual basis. So obviously we don't want the information to fall in the wrong hands, but we do want to promote it throughout the country. Mm -hmm. Now, when this uh, uh, when this concept was floated, and, and what I found fascinating is, after 9/11, man, our world was rocked, and I think it would be safe to say that, uh, from the United States perspective, uh, we we have never been uh, the same since that particular horrible event that took over 2,700 people. When the idea was floated for the center. 
Now, this is under Homeland Security, right? I mean, that's where you guys are from. I'm just trying to paint a picture as to here we are at the Naval Postgraduate School, which is one of the most prestigious uh, facilities in the world, in my mind. And in all the things that uh, you guys are doing, uh, whose idea was this? Was this, was this uh, what, Paul Stockton? Uh, it, wasn't he at Stanford? Or how, how did this thing, just a little bit more tactical, if you will, come about? And who floated this idea? And who had the authority to say, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's, let's set this thing up at the Naval Postgraduate School. Well, the idea came from Paul Stockton, who is now Assistant uh, Secretary of Defense, works for Panetta. And he was a faculty member, a colleague of mine, and he was right on it. He, you know, a month after 9/11, he was in the office of the Department of Justice because that's uh-huh. where counterterrorism activities were were placed. Because remember, Department of Homeland Security was not formed until roughly a year later. So right, okay. all was in their office, and they said, "Well, we need to have people better prepared." And Paul said. We can do that <laughs> at the Naval Postgraduate School. And he came back, and, and I, you know, I have to admit, I didn't have a whole lot to do because I had just come back from uh, working at Kodak. And he came mm-hmm. by and said, you want to work on this project? And I said, sure. And so I wrote the first budget, and over the next six months, we put together the curriculum and uh, laid out the whole center. And within nine months, we started having students. Yeah. I tell you, what I find fascinating about that, and it's been my pleasure to meet uh, some of your colleagues, Heather and David, and, I mean, you just got a wonderful staff. And and, and I love what you said when we were chatting uh, a few days ago in your office. Uh, uh, You just kind of give them the vision, and they they go get it done, if you will. This thing kind of runs, and everybody is so excited about the mission there at the center. And and, and I think it's something that uh, people need to know more about. Um, and 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 also uh, there at the Naval Postgraduate School, you were sharing uh, about the research and uh, all all the wonderful things that's going on there as well. So as we sat on the tenth day, one day prior to this tenth anniversary, uh, anything that you could share for us, uh, maybe take some pieces out of the. Uh, uh, post 9/11 commission report uh, lessons learned and, uh, and 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 obviously we not getting proprietary confidential uh, information but what's the biggest thing that we learned from 9/11 if you can put it in one nugget and I know that's a big question Ted so just trying to narrow it down if we could look at two or three vital things that in in your mind from your perspective that we learned as a result of 9/11 well, I think it's, uh, we already know, but we were reminded that the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and we yeah. let our guard down. So we learned that we have to be uh, vigilant, and that's what our center is, and that's what the uh, Department of Homeland Security is about, is to be not, being careful, being on the lookout. And, you know, it's a controversial thing about how much you're spending and how much effort yeah. we're putting into this, but... You, you know, my colleague Eric Dahl tracks these things, and he says that we've foiled 45 attempted attacks since 9-11. So you, on the one hand, you can argue that, you know, we don't know what we're doing, and that's, you know, there's critics that say that. On the other hand, we haven't uh, suffered another 9-11. So I think what we learned is that we can do this. Americans are very re- resilient, and uh, people working in this field re- Remember 9/11 every day, and we, uh, you know, work hard at being vigilant. You know, it's uh, preventing uh, these uh, type of events uh, doesn't get a whole lot of play in the, in the press. It's the bad stuff that gets the press play, right? So it's yeah. uh, it was, that. Safe assumption or accurate? Yeah, that's, that's the conundrum for us, right? Is yeah. uh, right. nobody knows about the attacks that were prevented, and and the press, you know, makes a big deal out of the things that do happen and that we do know about. But uh, you know, how do you measure something that didn't happen? 
Right, right, absolutely, and and that's the reason I'm so excited when you accepted to come on the show, and and it just happened to turn out, you know, great uh, (laughs) on September the 10th. But that's the message that uh, I want to put out to the world, and we're fortunate to have over 500,000 listeners worldwide on our program, and this is the message that we always want to communicate is that uh, being safe and secure and and liberties, and there's so many people behind the scenes uh, that uh, are working 24-7 to protect our liberties and to keep uh, uh, everybody safe as as, as they sleep. And uh, I, for one, want to do everything I can to spread the word and say, look at this wonderful things they're doing. Yeah, it requires a a, a budget, uh, but uh, these are some great things that these people are doing over there at the center. Uh, so the center, thank thank everyone that's uh, for all, all the work that they they do there. Now, what in the world is Box Sandpile? I, that name is what is Box Sandpile? I have your book. It is. A wonderful read. And how can people get this book, uh, Ted? Where can they buy it? Oh, it's available on Amazon.com. Um, okay. So, yeah, just, you know, dial up your uh, electronic bookstore. Um, the the name of the book comes yeah. from Furbach, who is a physicist who did this work um, in the 1980s, and he formulated a kind of a, a theory about why bad things happen, and so it's a uh, sandpile is a metaphor for mm-hmm. complex systems that tend to collapse, and so so that metaphor has been applied by me and others actually to try to answer the question: What is the nature of a catastrophe? And that's that's what I address in this book. Well, if you're up to it. Uh... My favorite word is, can we drill down on some of the things here? And one that I uh, I couldn't help as I was reading the book, I just keep going back to Chapter 6. And Chapter 6 really jumped out at me, Blackout USA. Mm-hmm. Because I just completed a series, uh, uh, seven, well, eight-week series, on the infrastructure uh, roads, bridges, dam, water, uh, you name it, and the uh, disrepair, uh, specifically in California, but the other states as well, and the need for a long-term highway bill and a funded bill and a jobs bill and all this, all these type of things. So when I picked up the book and went to page 161, and you started talking about the electric power grid, and as I stated at the opening of the show, uh, the massive power blackouts in 2003. Could could you take some time and uh, kind of put this thing together? What what are we talking about? When Box started putting these uh, uh, these, I'm going to use the word formulas together. And, um, uh, how how is this used? I mean, when we say can we plan for the unforeseen by thinking about the unthinkable? That's where I want to drill down on. Can we plan for the unforeseen by thinking about the unthinkable? And this uh, power grid is, uh, I don't think people realize the uh, complexity of that. So can you talk to about that yeah, a little bit? The, the uh, electric power grid in this country and in in many developed countries is an example of a sand pile. What do I mean by that? For example, adding more reliable parts to the power grid actually makes the blackouts bigger. So why is that? Why would you, common sense would say if you make the parts, say the transformers and the power lines, more reliable or more, uh, you know, able to withstand things better, it seems like the Blackouts should get smaller, but in fact they get larger. This is an observed fact. This is not my theory, but uh, Mr. Smart Grid, which I talk about in that chapter, is Masad mm-hmm. Amin, who is a professor at the uh, University University uh, of Minnesota, and he's 
written about this quite extensively, and he's sort of the expert on it, and he's one of the featured characters in, in that chapter, and he tried to explain why why that is. Well, the answer is uh, what Perbach called self-organization. That is, as these systems, and these can be political systems or physical systems like the power grid, lots of systems uh, uh, are described by Fox theories, um, a certain kind of tension builds up called self-organized criticality. And this tension builds up over time mostly because we try to optimize things. And what the consequences are that even small things that happen can cause catastrophic effects. So self-organized criticality equals tension equals big blackouts, and that's the problem facing the, the uh, power grid. It's a classic example of uh, box theories. So in 2003, is that what happened? Yeah, in 2003, a rather uh, routine outage, or actually it was a series of couple of uh, what other people call normal accidents, but small mistakes uh, were made, and those compounded and rippled through the system and brought down most of the northeastern power grid. And what's interesting about this is that most of our systems that we depend on are subject to this because in modern societies we've become more fragile because we've made everything more efficient. We've optimized things. We've made just-in-time supply chains, and we've made, mm -hmm. you know, we've uh, sacrificed surge capacity to get efficiency, and so we don't have enough hospital beds uh, to accommodate a 9/11 style disaster. We don't have enough, you know, forward-positioned uh, water and food for Hurricane Katrina and things like that. So this is a consequence. This is a embedded in modern society. It's not anybody making a mistake or, you know, poor designs or anything. It's it's embedded in modern society. So that's what I try to come up with a prescription in that chapter. And my prescription is, I think it's uh, pretty appropriate for today because it would put millions of people back to work. My prescription is to build the infrastructure for the 21st century, which is uh, energy and information. And what I want to do is I want to use the rights of ways of the interstate freeway system to put in fiber and uh, natural gas and uh, power. Because if you look at the problem with uh, green energy today is there's no market for it. There's If you have a uh, solar array panels out in the desert in New Mexico, it's currently impossible for you to sell those electrons in Chicago or Philadelphia or New York. It's not like the Internet, where the Internet you can start uh, blog talk radio and you can reach the the globe. In, right. Uh, in the power power grid is very somewhat localized and and another thing you need you need storage because green energy is intermittent. So you so you add these things up and you have to rebuild or reconfigure the what I consider the most important backbone of the country, which is energy and power and information. And so I have a concrete proposal for how to do that in in that chapter. You know, I read and I have that section highlighted, highlighted, highlighted. And question is any discussion uh in say in in Congress about these uh, opportunities uh from from the grid? I mean, God knows we have so many Challenges, like I said, uh, trying to get a uh, long-term highway uh, funding bill, and uh, our Senator Boxer's uh, committee, uh, when they came back after recess on the eighth, uh, which is a couple of days ago, was to vote on that. And uh, so, where does this fall under uh, the infrastructure development? Uh, where's the funding coming from, say, to do what you're proposing to do here? Because what opened my eyes looking at reading this chapter, uh, Ted, was the complexity, and I think you say it's it's probably the 
largest complex system in the world. And, and did, did I read that right, or am I, I hope I'm not misquoted? Yeah, the IEEE Power Group has declared the power grid is the major accomplishment of the 20th century. I, right. I, that's their claim. My, my claim is probably the Internet is the biggest and most complex infrastructure ever conceived by mankind. But it's it's up there in terms of you know complexity. Well, you've identified the the scientist's conundrum because I'm fundamentally a scientist and right. not a politician. But how does a scientist communicate with a politician? We tend to speak in different languages, so it's very difficult. But you know, my proposal wouldn't cost the government all that much money because it's when you dig into things like. Uh, uh, fragility of power grids or the, the communications network, the internet, those kinds of big infrastructures, you find out that they're pretty much shaped by regulation. They're pretty much either helped or hindered by laws that could be changed. And it doesn't cost anything to change these laws. Let me give you an example. Mm-hmm. The 1996 Telcom Act is what has created the vulnerabilities in the telecommunications and the Internet sector. I mean, it's a direct result of the 96 Act. And so if we wanted to make the telecom sector more secure, we would change that regulation. Similarly, the 1992 E-Pact, which is what uh, is commonly known as the uh, deregulation of the power grids, is also the reason why we have these blackouts. It's not directly related, but it's a byproduct of that that regulation. And so we could change, the politicians could change a lot without costing very much. In my book, I proposed that for roughly a 3 to 5% toll on uh, electrons and uh, the things going through this uh, continental-scale uh, infrastructure, roughly 3 to 5% you could pay for it all. The government would not have to put in a dime. The government would have to change the regulations and the rules, but they wouldn't have to pay a dime. So hmm. I don't think this is hard to do. I think it's hard to explain. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, and very very well said. Uh, and also from a scientist's uh, uh, perspective and communicating that, uh, very well said. In uh, the chapter... Uh, continuing on chapter six, when you're laying out that that plan and, and you had mentioned some of the regulations, um, what's what's one or two that, in addition to what you've already uh, laid out, that should be addressed in order to kind of make this thing a reality or to be able to say, uh, sitting in front of uh, politicians and Congress, said, hey, if you do this. Uh, regulation, make this regulation, and when we're proposing change, everybody is obviously resistant to change because of fear, right? Uh, Fear of change. However, uh, being able to uh, get an active, where I'm I'm trying to go with this, if I can frame my question, is uh, how do we, in maybe two pages or less, be able to present that to Congress and say, let's take a look at some of the things, because if you you know we need we need people to go to work today. I mean that's one of the issues, and you and you you said that earlier. Uh, what some of the regulations that would need to have to change in order to make this thing uh, a, a reality? What's the well, what, well, what's the biggest all, regulation? Well, first of all, the the regulation in '92 made it unattractive, let's say, to invest in transmission lines, yep. and that was compounded by the fact that. Uh, we have NIMBY, not in my backyard. So, for example, right. PG&E wants to uh, build a transmission line from Canada to Mexico, a thousand-mile-long transmission line, because right. you know in California, electrons flow north and south through about two or three lines. So, we had a outage back in the 90s that took out the 11 western states and parts of Canada, and that was because we only had one power line that connected us all together and. I guess a a power uh, shorted out near the Oregon-California border, and everybody went black for for a while. Mm. So so we don't have enough transmission, and the 92 EPAC doesn't incentivize people to build transmission. And NIMBY makes it 
even further unattractive to do so. So one reason why I'm proposing we use the interstate highway system is because, first of all, it reaches uh, every place in the United States. Second of all, the states actually own the land. They don't have to ask permission for from, mm. you know, you don't have to go buy your property and put a power line on it or whatever. They have the ability to do that. In fact, some states have essentially leased out their rights of way along highways for um, fiber cable and that kind of stuff. So it's not even a new idea. It's just a big idea. So what the – and also the interstate highway system is a good model for how to organize these things. The freeways are paid by a highway trust fund, so mm-hmm. our gasoline tax is paid for it, and it didn't come out of the general fund. Um, the um, the way in which the feds dealt with that was they sort of specified, you know, the engineering and technical and somewhat political requirements for it, but they didn't tell the states exactly how to do it. So some states mm-hmm. used cement, some used asphalt, and so on. So as a way I see it, someone like NIST, the National Institutes of Standards, could specify what these systems would look like and and the private sector, you know, I, I mean, venture capitalists would be all over this. If, mm-hmm. if the capital community knew that they could get to markets, you know, way beyond their own local areas with a uh, windmill or a or a solar array or something, they would jump on it. Because right now, there is no market for it. If you build something out in the desert of California, how do you get that energy into to, uh, Los Angeles or Phoenix? The lines are congested, uh, it's expensive, and there's no capacity. So that's mm-hmm. a, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Therein lies the opportunity, right? <clears throat> I think it's a huge opportunity. And if you uh, were to build this, you know, in the rights of way, freeways, mm-hmm. it might take you 20 years. You know, the interstate freeway system uh, it's taken us 50 years now. We're 50 years into the interstate, and there's still some some of it being built. Uh, but let's say it took 20 years and you raised $50 billion a year from the private sector. That's a trillion dollars to replace right. the electric power good in this country with somewhere upwards of a trillion dollars. So let's not string power cables on telephone poles anymore. Let's, let's put it underground in tunnels or in trenches next to the freeways or in the middle of the freeway or wherever, and let's include things like Natural gas, because that's probably how the uh, transportation, you know, the trucking industry is going to uh, mm-hmm. propel itself for the next 50 or 100 years. Let's mm-hmm. include uh, Internet access. Let's include, um, you know, the big uh, long-haul transmission lines. And let's include storage. By my estimate, if you had about 1,000 storage uh, units, um yeah, that would cover the 40,000 miles of the interstate highway system. So so that solves a number of problems. If these storage, energy storage silos were near Los Angeles, for example, then you wouldn't have you wouldn't have uh, transmission congestion going from the nuclear power plant in Arizona to Los Angeles for power. Because what you would do is you'd charge them up at night when people aren't using the transmission lines, and during the day you would run off the storage in the surrounding uh, suburbs of Los Angeles. So it solves a lot of different problems. Now, the power engineers don't like this because they think of the power grid as a gigantic circuit, and there's all kinds of things that can happen with uh, electrical circuits. So the notion of storage in these circuits is is outside the realm of what they've been taught. So they're going to say it's not possible. And uh, people who uh, build these types of things is going to say it's too expensive. But, you know, Jim, I remember when JFK said, within yeah. a decade we're going to put a man on the moon. And I didn't believe it. I didn't think that was possible. And a lot of people didn't think it was possible in less than 10 years to land a man, a man on the moon and bring him back safely. And we, and we put 12 of them there and brought them back safely. So we can do this. Americans can do this. They just need a little bit of imagination and a little bit of a challenge, too. 
I I am so happy because that's uh, 1960. That's one of my that that speech and uh, boy that speech within itself uh, changed the world too as we know it today. All the allied industries that came from that vision, and uh, and and I think that's true. Having uh, the leadership with the vision is something required as well in order to be able to do these bold and, and step out and not to be afraid to take a position and 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 uh, communicate in a clear vision. And uh, I, I think you're absolutely right on for as the uh, grid is concerned. Ted, uh, we need to get in a quick break. Uh, and we come back after the break, uh, I'd like to drill down just a little bit more uh, on the um, uh, grid. And then I'd like to... Uh, I mean, this hour is going to go so fast, and I hope you will ex- uh, accept a standing invitation because you're such a, I mean, you just got a wealth of knowledge, and uh, and, and we need to make sure that we uh, get this information to the world more on a consistent basis. So you have a standing invitation anytime you want to come back, sir. So uh, if you could just bear with me that we get in a quick break, and we'll be back and continue. Great. Be back in, be back in 45 seconds. This segment is brought to you by Circle of Success, a dynamic, year-long, intensive management and leadership development process designed to help individuals and organizations reach their goals quickly. A customized process addressing specific needs and identifying the critical opportunities particular to the individual and organization with results measured in increased revenue, increased net profits, and increased equity. The Circle of Success, inspiring excellence in people at jlwhiteinternational.com slash circles. Thank you. We're back with Dr. Ted Lewis, and uh, you can call in at 619-768-7298. And I see from the switchboard that uh, we have, looks like over... 23,122 listening online, so thank you for that. Let's talk about, from Bach's perspective, uh, Ted, if we will, uh, Katrina. Uh, how can this, uh, when you bring it, how, how can these things be predicted through Bach's theory, if you will? And yeah, then the oil spill. How, how do we do that? Yeah, actually, the, you mentioned that, you know, are there patterns to disasters? Yeah. And, in fact, right. there are. And then what struck me when I wrote the book is that the the pattern is always the same. It's what I call in the book a power law. And mm. power law is basically a fancy word for little things, little consequence things are much more frequent, much more likely to happen than the really big ones, the so-called black swans, as Talib would, would call it. And uh, However, these power laws are sort of, think of them as fingerprints or signatures for categorized um, disasters. So hurricanes and floods and uh, forest fires and terrorist attacks and uh, attacks by diseases, they all follow power laws. They're all, if you look at the history of Things like terrorism or or the, even the expansion of uh, pandemics, whatever, they always follow a power law. And the, the tale of that power law tells you what the likelihood of that size event happening. And that's how people get these estimates of, say, earthquakes in California. You know, an earthquake of this size is going to happen every 30 years. And that comes from actual data that traces out the power law. So we know, for example, that hurricanes are going to happen at a certain size with a certain frequency. So whether it's a 100-year hurricane or a 30-year hurricane, whatever, we know that. So what's very interesting from a sociological point of view is that these are are as certain to happen as the sun's going to come up the next day, and yet we tend to uh, blow them off because we think they're remote and they're not going to happen. Same thing with the, the uh, um, financial crisis in 2008. Financial crises of that size happen roughly every 24 to 25 years. I mean, 
we know this historically. If you go back to the founding right. of the country and plot it out, you know, from 1776 to now, you'll follow right. one of these power laws. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I was, um, a few weeks ago, I was just kind of counting down over my 40 years and the number of recessions we've kind of seen, and uh, you're you're right on there. Um how about the oil spill? Same, same, same deal. I mean, the Gulf oil spill uh, is, is that that the same? Is that following uh, the same yeah, pattern? Yeah. yeah, they they happen with a I won't say a regularity, but with a likelihood that's predictable based on historical information. Now we don't don't necessarily know where they'll happen or when they'll happen, but we know that they're inevitable with a certain likelihood. And that's the that's the message. The message is, in in modern societies, we optimize out surge capacity. So what that that means is that if you have a if you know 30 years from now that we're going to have a massive oil spill, like what happened in the Gulf, why aren't we doing something about it today? Well, because we don't right. plan for surge capacity, right? We don't plan for right, either. right. We don't want to pay for it either. Takes it's all about dollars, right? Investment. Yeah, it's about dollars. Mm-hmm. And there's some surprising things in the book. There's some, for example, why did the SARS epidemic or pandemic not sweep yeah. the world? You know, and why and why did the, um, you know, why hasn't the, haven't terrorists tried to take down the internet? What would happen if they tried? So and these are these are sort of second order effects, but they're somewhat explainable by understanding these power laws. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this book, this latest book, Box Sandpile. If you and it's a, it is a very very uh, fact filled read. But in my opinion, it is absolutely a must-read uh, for everybody everybody globally uh, because it's so sound when you start uh, looking at all of these uh, bright minds, uh, you and your other fellow scientists as they start looking at this. And, and we said, it, we've got to be able to put this in such a fashion uh, to our elected officials uh, to show where the dollars need to be directed and and with the focus on creating jobs, creating jobs, creating jobs. And at the same time, uh, could we have predicted what happened in Vermont at this this latest hurricane? I mean, what can we say about that? Same thing? I mean... Well, yeah, that's a good question because... These are the so-called black swan events, right? The high right. like event, predictable, etc. And right. even 9/11, no one would have predicted. Well, there are were people that said this is possible, but the likelihood was so small, and the, you know they, 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 they tended to ignore it. So this is what happened. So one of so one of the byproducts of this is that it's it's also coupled to modern society. The floods in Vermont and uh, you know Hurricane Irene mm-hmm. happens with a regularity. It might be a 100-year regularity or more, but it happens with the regularity. What is different? What changed? Is that now we have a modern society that has no no surge capacity, has no resilience because it's been optimized out. So it's not that the nature has changed so much, although that's probably also true with global climate change. But it's more that now we've layered on top of that a modern, complex society that has no surge capacity. Hmm. How about, uh, I'm going to continue to drill down on the book a little bit more. Can you hear me now? Chapter 7. I love that. Uh, Hubs and Spokes. And you lay out over his 120-year history, the architect of the U.S. communication infrastructure has evolved into a self-organized complex network 
because of extreme concentration of equipment and a relatively small number of telecom hotels. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that. What do you, what, where are you going with that? And I know it's in the book here, and everybody got to buy the book and read it, but uh, talk a little bit about that, Ted. And, and I know you have to a degree, but 120-year history, the architect of U.S. communication infrastructure has evolved in a self-organized complex network. And like I said, you have uh, talked about it, and you go on and talk about the regulation, the economy, monopoly. And as I set this framework, I go back to 2003, and I'm going to throw a name out there, uh, this Enron deal. Could that have been predicted using box theory? Um, well, the Enron is, was a direct consequence of the 96 Telecom Act. That is, the, well, the case of Enron, I'm sorry, the 92 EPAC, which is the Energy Policy Act. But uh, in telecom, it's the 96 Telecom Act. In both cases, they, um, these acts promoted this so-called self-organization. In the case of the telecommunications industry, you were rewarded for co-locating your switching equipment uh, with your competitors. Prior to the 96 Telecom Act, that was anti-competitive, but now it's, it's a, again, it's an optimization and an efficiency move, but as a consequence, just in this short uh, decade or so, the telecom industry has evolved from kind of a distributed system to a highly concentrated system. For example, I don't think a lot of people know this, but the largest, these are called Tier 1 ISP, Tier 1 Internet Service Providers, or they're the, they're the big switches in the cloud that handle a huge percentage of all internet traffic. So where is that? And is it protected? Mm -hmm. Because if I take down the largest one of those, I'm going to have a big impact on the internet and on the success of telephone calls. Well, a lot of people don't know this. The biggest bandwidth uh, switch in the world is in Frankfurt, Germany, probably because it's a financial center. The biggest ISP, and this is switches back and forth between level three and cogent PSI, but it's located in, you know, headquartered in downtown Washington D.C. So what happens when these things don't work? Nobody knows in the case of the telecom industry, but they, what we do know is that they didn't, they would not have existed prior to '96. They exist because of the Telecom Act of 1996. So, again, the impact of regulation on these industries is, is dramatic. Hmm. Your students uh, at at the center, you said you made presentation to the governors and the governor's staff, and 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 I know your your staff, and 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 again, I just uh, cannot say enough for how wonderful your staff is, Ted. Uh, just, just wonderful folks. Um, when we're making presentations to them, are we tying, uh, you know, say your book into some of this to be able to for them to because they are a center of influence to decision makers, right? In Congress, uh, do we have an opportunity to talk about that, or is that kind of taboo, if you will, from you know, uh, or is it just? People think, well, we're just promoting a book. But, I mean, these things that you have in the book, in my opinion, has a direct uh, impact on national security as well. Yeah, we well, we do have a wonderful staff, uh, Glenn Woodbury and Heather Isveran and David O'Keefe, who you mentioned, was, right. uh, was our CEO for a while until he went on to better things. But he had a big impact on the, quote, design of the center, and uh, we appreciate that. Uh, I like to think of uh, the center as being an inverted organization where I'm at the bottom of the org chart and all the people that work for me are at the top because they have great skills. And also our, our students are, are very uh, experts. They, mm -hmm. You know, they're in their mid-30s to mid-40s or 50s, so they're mid-career people that have lots of expertise, and we learn a lot from them. And they also, now that we've graduated 
several hundred. They've also become a, a force of, for change within the country, certainly within uh, emergency response and uh, uh, homeland security. But their influence is spreading, and that's kind of heartening to us at the center that, that this is this is happening. Various theses have been used as for pol making policy decisions and so forth. Mm -hmm. Well, for some strange reason, the, my students are required to read Box Sand File. And <laughs> they, I wonder why. <laughs> they, <Yeah. laughs> they, some of them don't like it, and some of them do like it, but we try to teach people to be critical thinkers, so the ones that don't like it have, you know, exercises their critical thinking, and that's good. Yeah. So what we think is happening, we, we think the center is a force for change because we think that our students and the people that attend our executive leaders programs are going out into the world and they are talking to people and they are, um, you know, making things happen. And this idea of looking at the world from a complex systems theory point of view is sort of a theme that's carried by students and faculty to the other parts of the world. It's you know the bottom line is it's gaining steam. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you apply it to all these things? That's still you know somewhat of a question. Yeah, and it's a good question. And uh, <clears throat> doing what doing things like we're doing today is a a step. Uh, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them what you told them, and tell them again, and keep telling them. Uh, communicating, communicating uh, all of these uh, because got a lot of bright minds and uh we just need to put it all all, all the work. Ted we have let me see the uh, I'm being told eight minutes and thirty nine seconds left in the show. And I am just going to uh anything you would like to I mean this is your last minutes uh anything that you would like to share in the book, otherwise center uh, any, any message for all these uh, our, our listeners today? Uh, any, anything that uh, this is the open forum for you in these last few minutes here? What would you like to? Uh, what 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 could you share with us more that uh, you think would be important? Maybe a call to action. I mean, what, whatever yeah, it let, is. You're, if you let me kick it up a level, okay. I think nine eleven um, made Americans afraid. And we have to get over that. We have to no longer be afraid, and we have to go back to the, you know, the Kennedys and the Eisenhowers and say, we're capable of great things. We can build infrastructures. We can go to the moon. We can uh, overcome, you know, the energy crisis problems, the financial crisis problems, all these things. But it starts with not being afraid. And right. Americans have always responded to kind of various threats. I mean, whether it's World War II or whether it's, you know, the Cold War or whatever, we've always responded to these things and we've always done a fantastic job. And I think we need to go back to that. We need to go back to the idea that uh, when I was a kid growing up, I thought everything was possible. You know, I, right. just, I never questioned whether things were possible or not, or whether we could afford them or not, or whether it would work or not, uh, we just did things, and we we achieved things, and that's what we need to do now. And, and uh, I talk about this a little bit in the latter chapters of my book, but leaders that take advantage of crises have always become the great leaders. Right. The leaders that see crises as opportunity that make them great. So whether it's, you know, Kennedy and, you know, you got to remember with Kennedy, the Bay of Pigs was a huge disaster. The right, Cuban right. was a huge, huge thing. Uh, but, yeah, you know, people remember him for the space program and other things. So we always have had leaders that responded to crisis, and, and now, now we have a crisis, a number of them, and, now is actually an opportunity to respond, and I think Americans can do it. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, uh, Chapter 11, if I were king, I, that's where you lay 
some of this out about some of the leadership, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, yeah. I'd like to start these chapters out with a little story. So that's about Queen Elizabeth and her long reign, and she's 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 not a power law, and she's not a black swan in that sense, but she's probably going to be the the longest term monarch in at least in the UK history. So what we need to do is go back to basic principles and. And so in that last chapter, I outlined some things, certainly not all the things that we could do, but I proposed solutions like what we were talking about earlier, about rebuilding infrastructure along the interstate highway rights away. And I talk about other things, the, how we could deal with the Internet, uh, you know, hacking on the Internet, and how we can deal with uh, potential for pandemics. And these are existential questions, right? Right, are, right, right. What happens... You know, are there things that could happen that would end the country or whatever? So these are big, big questions, and anybody's guess is uh, is, is good. But, you know, for example, the I cite the uh, uh, us the, the meteor that's a rather large meteor that was predicted to hit the Earth in 2036 or so, and that's sort of uh, been corrected, so maybe that won't happen. But, but you know, this would be of, on the order of magnitude of the KT event 65 million years ago that wiped out 90% of all life, and including the dinosaurs. So these are big things, and we have to think about them. We have to think about what if there is a uh, meteor headed toward the Earth that's going to get here in 25 years or whatever. What would we do about it? It's an argument to not do away with all nuclear power, uh, nuclear bombs in the world. Maybe that's a mm-hmm. kind of a radical thought, but you might mm-hmm. need. I understand. Now, you know. Right. So these are the big things that we talk about in, in the last chapter. My, you know, the underlying theme of the book is: can we get Americans to think big thoughts again? And that's kind of what my hidden agenda is. And I think you have uh, done an excellent job in that because it is a critical thinking book. I mean, I can see I mean, just any given page, any given chapter, uh, just to have uh, open dialogue uh, within individuals to uh, do the what if and just kind of peel the onion back, so to speak. It, it's a wonderful job in doing that, Ted. Um you know, I, I want to in chapter eleven before we uh, get out. Where was I? Was I, I marked this? Um, okay. Oh, I know what it was. Um, back to the Enron thing. I'm just going to circle back here for a moment. When that thing unfolded, and when the blackout in two thousand and three. And um, was that finally, that 2003 blackout, uh, was that part of the, I'm going to use the word, greed that happened there and the games that we've been playing with, uh, say, maybe Enron? Did that help that blackout, or was that just had nothing to do with it? Uh, yeah, no, it didn't really have anything to do with it. The, okay. the Enron thing was... was uh, Gaming of the deregulation that allowed um, electrons to be bought and sold, okay. kind of like a futures market, right? Right, and, right. Uh, interestingly enough, that was probably uh, a detrimental thing that Enron did, but that's not actually what they got thrown in jail right. for. Exactly. But, uh, but the, it did uh, raise the specter of. Uh, gaming of the markets in energy, which have been somewhat ameliorated by the use of ISOs, independent system operators, and RTOs, so that their job really is to to pre- prevent that from happening in the future. But one of the reasons why this exists as a as a market in the first place is because <clears throat> it's called wheeling in the it used to be called wheeling in the electric power grid where you you buy and sell electrons. Because if you're running a grid, you have two choices. You can either 
sell your excess power or you can shut down a power plant and you don't want to set, shut down a power plant, so it's better off to sell it. But how do you sell it? If you if you had an Internet-like structure, you could sell it pretty easily. Yeah. It's called eBay, yeah. right? But if you... Yeah, but if <laughs> exactly. Grid, there's just a few places where those things can go because you're restricted in terms of transmission, then it becomes much more difficult and much more susceptible to gaming. Yeah. Ted, we are going to have to say thank you. Uh, we're running out of time here, and we could go for hours and hours and hours, and I hope you would entertain coming back at a future date. Uh, I, I want to really thank you for spending Saturday and sharing all this great information. And once again, uh, you can uh, uh, get Ted's book at Amazon.com. And uh, make sure you visit the center. What's the center's uh, uh, website address again, please, Ted? www.chds.us. Thank you, Ted. And uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today. And uh, we'll be back next Saturday at the same time. And I really want to uh, extend a thanks to all the people at the center and all the first responders and everybody that does such a uh, diligent job and uh, security and especially on the eve of 9-11 tomorrow. So once again, Ted, I, I really appreciate your time, and uh, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you, Jim. It's been my pleasure. My pleasure is mine. Thank you, sir. And until next week, ladies and gentlemen. Be safe, and we will talk to you then. You've been listening to Jim White's Circle of Success Radio. Please visit our website, jlwhiteinternational.com. Join us next time as Jim White brings it all together on Jim White's Circle of Success Radio.